Welcome to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast, where I discover stories of grit, resilience, and connection. I'm your host, Marie GG, and this podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. As a writer and marketing communications coach, I help organizations discover what makes them special and help them share that with the world. Writing engaging content is one of my superpowers. Look us up on FertileGroundCommunications.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please give us a review and subscribe to hear our next episode. As a podcaster for justice, I stand with my sisters from the Women of Color podcasters community. We are podcasters united to condemn the tragic murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and many others at the hands of police. This is a continuation of the systemic racism pervasive in our country since its inception, and we are committed to standing against racism in all its forms. Today, I will share my own life's grit and resilience story because it is my birthday. Resilience is my life's motto. And that's the reason for this podcast subtitle. It's also another one of my superpowers. And one day when the pandemic finally ends, it will be my next tattoo. Indian Canadian poet Rupi Kaur wrote, If you were born with the weakness to fall, you were born with the strength to rise. It started when I was born. My mom had German measles when she was pregnant in the days before ultrasounds. She had no idea what would be wrong with me. Babies exposed to rubella in utero can have cataracts, deafness, and heart, lung, and brain abnormalities. It can also cause miscarriage, preterm birth, or stillbirth, as well as a variety of birth defects. In my case, I was born with a cleft lip, cleft palate, and club foot. The doctor would not allow my mom to see me until he warned her first. She brushed him away, insisting that she be able to hold me. The way she tells it, she was just incredibly relieved that I had birth defects that could be repaired. I know that my mom's immediate and unconditional love on the day of my birth, 56 years ago today, set me up for my resilient and optimistic spirit. I've always been grateful to have been born into the family I was and into a time when my cleft lip and palate could be treated. In ancient times, people believed that cleft lip and palate were evidence of an evil spirit. The affected infants were often left to die in the wilderness. My childhood was full of doctor visits and never-ending surgeries. I had surgeries to repair my cleft lip as a baby but the opening on the roof of my mouth and back of my throat took a lot longer to repair. My first childhood memory was being in a hospital ward, waiting for another surgery. My parents came to visit me with Dr. Seuss's Red Fish, Blue Fish, and a book about a child getting ready for a tonsillectomy, the only surgery apparently children had in the 1960s. I do not remember any fear in my memory. In fact, that is a typical attitude I've had to all of the 20 plus surgeries I've had in my life. I trusted the doctors and I had no particular reason to believe anything would go wrong. That describes my approach to most things, I suppose. I discovered something new yesterday. My mom told me that in 1964, the U.S. had only two cleft palate centers, and one of them was in Oregon. They decided to stay in Oregon so I could get the best treatment. My treatment was free, including years of orthodontia, because we classified as low income, and it was a teaching medical and dental school. I received services at what used to be called the, quote, crippled children division, believe it or not. As a child, I loved Dr. Robert Blakely, the upbeat, jovial, white-haired man who made me laugh. What I didn't know then was that he was essentially a cleft palate rock star. He was head of the speech and hearing clinic and the craniofacial disorders program at Oregon Health and Sciences University for 43 years. He died in 2010, I believe. He was president of the Oregon Speech and Hearing Association and a section of the National Cleft Palate Association. In the early 1970s, he pushed for legislation 
legislation, create the state's first licensing program for speech language pathology and audiology, and he held license number one. He developed free or low-cost clinics around the world for treating children with cleft lips and cleft palates, using a team-based approach to integrate medical treatment, speech therapy, and social services. When I was very young, I started wearing what is called an obturator, similar to a retainer. It covered the hole in my palate and had a bulb at the end of it that went back into my throat. Over the years, the bulb was shaved away until it was very thin. My poor mom had struggles to get that obturator into my mouth when I was a small child, and even into my older childhood, she had to nag me to remove it before I went to sleep. The obturator helped me talk so people could understand me. My mom also told me yesterday that Dr. Blakely advocated fiercely with the Beaverton School District to obtain speech therapy for me when I was in preschool. He maintained that it would save them money and resources later on. Later, my oldest son would have what we now call early intervention speech therapy. I know now that I benefited from early intervention too, thanks to Dr. Blakely, because it was not done back in those days. The cleft lip and palate came with other complications like difficulty eating and constant ear infections. I remember having to swallow penicillin in the days when it was uncoated and tasted like poison. My mom would crush it and put it into a spoonful of sugar to disguise the vile taste. As a child, I loved to read books more than anything, and I was also a voracious letter writer. I collected stationery and wrote lengthy letters to scores of pen pals. Connection has always been a priority for me in my life. I also discovered I had musical talent when I was 10. My parents signed themselves up for guitar lessons in a park and enrolled me in children's guitar lessons in another park. I picked up the guitar so quickly that, discouraged, they both gave up. I began writing songs soon after that, and I also played the violin and the cello, and later on, I would pick up the mandolin. Like books, music has always been a balm to my soul and a comfort in hard times. Unfortunately, my screwed-up mouth also resulted in incredibly crooked teeth and an overbite, so I had extensive dental and orthodontal work in addition to two jaw surgeries when I was 18 and 19. My last cleft palate surgery happened at age 15, called a pharyngeal flap. The purpose was to completely close my palate so I would no longer have to wear the obturator. I have a scar under my nose and my nose is slightly off kilter. All my life, I've been stared at by those rude people who don't seem to think people are noticing they are staring at you. Young people have asked me why I have a scar on my face. I've always felt self-conscious about my face unless I'm smiling. Along with the constant braces, my small size, and my definite uncoolness, I was a victim of bullying in junior high. The hoods, as we called them, would be smoking cigarettes, looking menacing, and taunting me at the school bus stop. I remember one Halloween, they toilet papered and egged my house, and the next morning they asked me about it. Stoic as always, I told them I didn't know who had done it, even though of course I knew. I often wonder what their cool leaders, Shannon Nunn and Kayleen Carrier, made of their lives. I'm not sure where my strength came from, but even when they were filling my knitted hat with sawdust and putting it back on my head, or cutting the back of my nylons with something sharp, I did not want to let them know I was bothered. Of course it bothered me, but I also knew if I told anyone, it would only grow worse. Soon after that stage of their adolescent torment, I experienced a deeply traumatic event at age 13 when I was sexually assaulted by a stranger in my home, along with two other girls. True to character, I steeled myself and told my parents I did not need therapy to recover. But I know now I buried my trauma and did not process it as effectively as I could have. To this day, I'm fearful of dark places at nighttime, and I don't like to walk alone at night. Although it's uncomfortable for me to share this part of my story, I believe it's critical to bring these stories into the light of day. Nearly one in five women in the United States have been sexually assaulted sometime in their lives. 
We are everywhere, and it's important to talk about it to reduce the stigma, no matter how hard it might be. To this day, I get absolutely fierce when people disbelieve survivors. Sexual crimes are the only ones requiring the victim to convince law enforcement and the courts that the crime occurred. They are the only crimes that cast dispersions on the survivors of morality. Honestly, who would make up a story to have their life dragged through the mud to prove something happened? In reality, the percentage of times someone lies about a rape accusation is extremely low. Data show it's 2 to 10% of the time. However, we also know that only 20% of sexual assaults are reported to police. So that 2 to 10% rate is completely off. I would argue that it's extremely rare to falsify such claims. Several years ago, I realized how much trauma I was still carrying about this incident when I was called to jury duty on a case similar to my own. I thought I'd be able to get through it and be objective, but when I realized how much I was shaking, facing the accused perpetrator across the courtroom, I asked to be excused. But to be set free, I had to tell the packed courtroom what had happened to me. I left the courthouse sobbing, traumatized by the experience. I've been called for jury duty several times since then, and I've been able to get out of it so far, but now I have PTSD from jury duty. It's interesting that I'm a seven on the Enneagram, the personality type whose focus on what brings joy, happiness, and pleasure to life enables them to exude optimism. Because I have been through a shit ton of my life, I've always been drawn to images of powerful women and felt emotional when I watched the movie Wonder Woman. Rupi Kaur also wrote, women like you drown oceans. It's those types of women who inspire me and who I want to be. I know I'm strong because of my ability to survive and be resilient. When I was around 14 or 15, I had my first boyfriend. I think of him as my first Catholic Mike. My husband is also a Catholic Mike. He lived down the street and went to Jesuit high school. I remember getting up at 4 a.m. to ride on the back of his bicycle on his paper route with him. He turned out to be a jerk. He broke up with me and then changed his mind, wanting to get back together. When I said no, he waited for me after school one day. As I was walking down the street, he dumped a bucket of water over my head. As a stoic person I proved to be after all that junior high bullying, I kept walking. And my sister and fiercest defender stayed after to berate him and the guy washing his car, who lent him the bucket and water. In high school, I found myself drawn to speech team and music. Even though I felt deeply uncomfortable being in front of people, I've always felt this inner push to do things that scare me. From performing Let It Be in a school talent show in seventh grade, to competing around the state on speech team, I put myself out there even though it scared me. I also took charge and revived my church youth group and became president, my first leadership role, setting a pattern of taking charge when I saw a leadership gap. As the oldest of three children, I remember going to Pacific Lutheran University with little fear or reluctance. I love the newfound freedom and independence. During my first year, I roomed with a camp friend who had a jealous boyfriend back home. So we actually requested to live in the all-girls dorm, Harstad. Unfortunately, my friend dropped out after the first semester to go home to her boyfriend. And my first year in college was less than fantastic. But then I moved into a small co-ed dorm, Stewin, my sophomore year, and got into the highly competitive Spurs, a sophomore service sorority, and my social life blossomed. I felt like I finally found people like me, interested in reading, learning, and the world around them. Then in my junior year, my sister Nadine joined me at PLU, and college became even more fun. She was just two years younger than me, and when we were not fighting fiercely as kids, we were close. That closeness grew tremendously after I left for college. I even wrote a song for her during my freshman year when she turned 16. I'd entered college with the intention to become a teacher because I'd always enjoyed children and spent a lot of my teenage years babysitting and teaching Sunday school. But when I took an advanced composition class from a notoriously tough professor, I wrote a first-person essay about my sexual assault and actually read it to the class at my professor's request. He asked me on one of my papers, 
Have you ever thought of majoring in English? That was all I needed to say. I'd always had a knack for writing, and I realized how much more I enjoyed my English classes than my education ones. It didn't help that I had a disappointing practicum experience during my sophomore year. Had I found the education department more exciting, my life might have taken a different course. After graduating, I wanted an adventure. My parents had lived in Germany and traveled through Europe before I was born, but I didn't fly on a plane until I was 20 years old when I flew to the Bay Area with friends. My family had taken camping and road trips throughout my childhood, including my favorite childhood memory, a six-week road trip across the country. But flying was too expensive for us. My second flight was a graduation gift from my parents. My college roommate, Debbie, and I traveled to Boston and Washington, D.C., where we met up with another friend from Colorado and drove my aunt and uncle's car back across the country to Seattle, my first adult adventure. I worked at the college's school of business, and I met a visiting professor there who had a connection to Japan. He told me his friend was recruiting teachers. I applied on a whim and told myself, if I get hired, I'm going. I knew not one word of Japanese, and I'd never traveled outside of the country except for a brief trip into Canada to see Niagara Falls. But I felt determined to see where my life would take me, and it was destined to take me to Japan. Fortunately, I convinced my travel buddy, Debbie, to join me. At the time, I was working as a nanny for my cousins in Seattle, and my aunt advised me to ask for a contract from my employer, including a furnished apartment, many times during that first year. As we learned that the company we were working for was unethical and shady, I realized how savvy she was. Later, I learned how hard it is to arrange rentals in Japan if you're a foreigner. Naive and not sure what we were in for, Debbie and I departed from Wakayama, Japan in August 1986. At that time, there were no direct flights from Portland to Osaka, and Korean Air was the cheapest. We would have to fly through Seoul and then to Tokyo and have to take the bullet train or Shinkansen to Osaka. That was quite a challenge because we knew no Japanese. We arrived in Tokyo's Narita Airport in the evening, and somehow we found our way to the airport limousine bus, which would take us to the Shinkansen station. Unfortunately, we were too late to get seats. So Debbie and I, with our two massive packed suitcases each, had to sit on the vestibule floor between the cars for the three and a half hour journey to Osaka. We were completely exhausted after our 20 hour flight, but we had no other options. When we arrived in Osaka very late, we called up Robert and Hiroshi, the Japanese men who had hired us. They recruited English teachers and then falsified their credentials to get visas, but we didn't know that yet. They told us we needed to find a place to stay in Osaka. We protested and insisted they meet us and take us to a hotel, so they did. It was our first taste of assertive American women. The next morning, we left for Wakayama, our new home. It felt great to be out of the city and in what felt like the real Japan. Wakayama had traditional Japanese homes with beautiful blue tiled roofs and green rice paddies dotting every block. The late summer evenings were full of frog songs from the rice fields. The roads were incredibly narrow. I can't believe that later that year, I fearlessly whizzed around on a motor scooter, even at night, riding home from the train station after my teaching stints in Osaka. I was 21 years old, and this was my first time outside of North America. In those first several days and weeks, my system was in shock. Different language, different writing, completely different culture. People drove on the other side of the road, and I was on the other side of the world. Very few people comfortably spoke English in Japan at that time. It took some time getting used to all the stares and having children following us around, also staring. In Wakayama, which people in Osaka call the country, we were novelties, especially in 1986, before the big English teacher boom of the early 1990s. On our first night in Wakayama, we had dinner at a rotating sushi bar, Kaiten Sushi. I remember during that first month, my friend Abby rode her bike to the gyoza dumpling shop to order some takeout gyoza. 
And instead of ordering 10 gyoza for herself, she ordered 10 orders of gyoza. Japanese numbering is complicated, and you use different numbers for different things. She couldn't explain her mistake in Japanese, so she returned home, and we all had gyoza that night. The first month, we stayed in a three-bedroom apartment with four other teachers. It was crowded, to say the least. The other teachers, mostly American and one Australian, had been there longer than us, and they were not always welcoming. One time they had some surfers over and smoked weed, which had us really worried. Just six years before, Paul McCartney had been jailed in Tokyo and then deported for possession of marijuana. I didn't want my Japan year to end just one month in. After the first month, three of us were grateful to move into a new apartment. We had meager furnishings like futons, a two-burner hot plate, small refrigerator, and an old-fashioned washing machine that had to be manually operated. The rest, like a table and chairs, we scavenged from the streets on garbage day after we discovered that Japanese people often got rid of perfectly functional items. We taught in a women's junior college called Seito Joshi Tandai, which was part of a larger university system called Kinki University. No, I am not joking. Kinky University. (laughs) Young women were sent to two-year colleges to make them more marriageable. Sometimes they would work as office ladies after graduation until they got married, but few went on to four-year universities. So the women we were teaching were not terribly motivated by academics or by learning English. They just wanted to have fun. And most of them, although they'd been studying English for many years, were not very good English speakers. That's where we came in. However, we had absolutely no training in how to teach them. We had to wing it completely. When my husband Mike went to Japan, the British English Teachers Program actually trained them in basic Japanese and how to teach conversational English. That first year, I found myself relying on a lot of role plays and games. Eventually, I bought my own books to help with my teaching. I felt completely unprepared, and I don't like to feel unprepared. Robert and Hiroshi also used us as pseudo-hostesses. Not too long after we arrived in Japan, all six of us gaijin, Japanese for foreigners. Not too long after we arrived in Japan, all six of us gaijin, Japanese for foreigners, were invited into Osaka for dinner and to sing karaoke with a bunch of Japanese businessmen. It was actually fun for us as we were new to Japan. It was our first night of karaoke and it was a night out in Osaka, but I'm sure our employers were paid for our presence. By the time we were done for the evening, it was too late to return to Wakayama, so we ended up shacking up in an extremely downmarket love hotel, the unsavory sort of hotel Japanese couples rent by the hour for sex. I remember it being freezing cold with no bed and a plastic sheet. When Robert found out we'd stayed at a love hotel, he was horrified, worried that our reputation as teachers would be destroyed. But we hadn't been paid yet, and it wasn't like we could afford a fancy hotel. And I'm sure he was learning that American women are a lot less worried about what other people might think than Japanese women were. Throughout that first year, I made trips into Osaka to teach these salary men, as they are called in Japan, one or two nights a week. They were actually fun guys, even though they lived a life of boring existence at work. One of them took me and Debbie home to his family in the eastern part of Japan one weekend, and we had the most authentically Japanese experience ever, staying in an old farmhouse that had a real fire brazier under the table and picking persimmons and Japanese potatoes. Another one took us to visit his family in the ancient capital of Nara, where we got to try on kimono. Later on, another one professed his love to Debbie, a flattering but unfortunate experience for her to deal with. Although I look back on my time in Japan fondly, I did have a rough time my first few months there. As a young feminist, I chafed against the aggressively patriarchal and male-dominated culture. My students were more interested in getting married than learning English, and none of my friends in Japan seemed to mind the sexism and patriarchal culture. I also missed my family and friends. Here's a grit and resilience aside about my parents. They said goodbye to me when I flew off to Japan, And the very next week, they said goodbye to my sister, who flew off to China to study there for a year. 
I can't imagine how hard this must have been for them, but they never gave us anything but their support, probably because they had done the live abroad thing too. I decided I would go visit my sister Nadine in Chengdu for Christmas and made arrangements to take a two-day boat trip from Kobe to Shanghai and then fly to Chengdu from there, my first solo trip. Even though I had arranged for my colleagues to cover my time away, our crooked boss Hiroshi told me I could not take the trip. I was furious and determined, so I told him I was going anyway. I'm sure I shocked all of the office staff of the college listening to our heated conversation. I felt desperate to see my sister, and no ridiculously unreasonable sexist man was going to get in my way. I went anyway, and although I still had my job, Hiroshi never spoke to me again. He always used Robert as a go-between. Women were not supposed to challenge men, even if they were gaijin. I don't remember much about the boat trip, but I spent two nights in Shanghai before flying to Chengdu. A Chinese woman named Zhou from Fudan University, sister university of my sister's Chengdu University, met me at the dock and asked for my passport and money. She took me to the university where I would be staying. My room was pricey and had cockroaches, but beyond that, it was fine. China in 1986 was very different than it is now. The first day I ventured downtown to walk through the city and visit the friendship store, which catered to foreigners. At the time, Chinese were not allowed into the friendship stores, which seemed so unfair. I found Chinese department stores to be virtually deserted of merchandise, but full of people. The next day, I bravely walked onto the main thoroughfare near the university and boarded a bus amidst hordes of openly staring people. I couldn't believe what chaos the buses were, with so many people on the bus that the doors barely shut. I thought the Japanese on mass transit were pushy, but nothing like the Chinese. Finally, the crowd thinned out a bit, and a Chinese student offered me a seat next to him. He spoke English well and expressed his opinion that in Japan, women are lower than men, but in the new China, men and women are equal. I was being a fed a political slogan. But then we talked about Japan, China, the US, and world peace and friendship. He told me that to get to school from his hometown, he had to ride on a train for 10 hours, standing up, holding his luggage, and that the train was so crowded he could barely move. When I expressed my surprise, he said, we Chinese have been through many hardships. We rode slowly through huge traffic jams in the city. This is what he explained to me about the traffic, according to my journal. There's a huge student demonstration. Apparently the reason is that there was an American dance group here in Shanghai that was performing and asked some of the Chinese in the audience to dance along with them. On the next dance, the Chinese interpreter didn't say anything, so one of the Chinese continued to dance with the group when he wasn't supposed to. Then after the performance was over, the American dancers were angry, so they beat up the Chinese man. No penalty was placed on the dance troupe, so students here are restless and demand retribution. So this is the third day of rallies against the Americans. Now, of course, I don't know if all this is true. Well, as we learned not too much later, this was one of the first student pro-democracy demonstrations that occurred in China. So I was right to be skeptical. This young student had been brainwashed by Chinese media. He took me all the way to the friendship store, and then I took a photo of him and his friend. He was very sweet and seemed sorry to see me go. Later on, I met a Japanese woman in the Jinjain Hotel Cafe, and we became instant friends. She was 24 and spoke fair English, enough with my limited Japanese to communicate. After saying sayonara to Hiroko, I trusted my life to a maniac driver in a little Honda. He didn't speak English except for, okay, okay? The next day, flying on China Air was chaotic. But when I saw my beloved sister Nadine for the first time at the Chengdu airport, I burst into tears because I had missed her so terribly. I spent over two weeks, including Christmas and New Year's, in Chengdu with Nadine and her friends. One of the guys I spent a great deal of time with and who visited me in Japan later that year, Daryl, tragically died from a rare form of cancer in his 30s. And I remember having long conversations with him back then about his fear of dying young. His dad also died young of cancer. 
I remember riding a bicycle that had no brakes into the city in the dark and no helmet or lights, of course. Going to the disco in the only fancy hotel in the city, also called the Jin Jane Hotel, and being accosted by money changers on every corner. We celebrated our first Christmas away from home by making cinnamon rolls and pseudo cream cheese out of yogurt so we could make cheesecake and singing in a church on Christmas Eve. We bought sweet potatoes and paintings on the street, got into a frank discussion with some Chinese students about Ronald Reagan, ate spicy noodles at a hole-in-the-wall restaurant where they never washed the bowls or chopsticks, and rode in a rickshaw. I remember getting into an argument with Charlie, Mimi's Korean-American friend, late one night when he said he thought the power in a marriage should be 51% to the male and 49% to the female. He was shocked at my reaction, for he thought he was being liberated. And I'm sure he was, compared to his parents and grandparents. We also watched spectacular Chinese fireworks on New Year's Eve. Most important was spending time with my sister while we were both experiencing the adventure of our lives. I will never forget my time with her in China, and also when she came to visit me a few months later in Japan. As I left Chengdu, I wrote, I just said one of the most difficult goodbyes I've ever said in my life. She will always be my best friend and confidant. I could never have asked for a better sister. It's not easy to travel in China solo, at least not in 1986. I'd missed the boat back to Japan because all the flights from Chengdu had been cancelled, so I had to find a flight home. By January, I was ready to leave China, finding it frustrating and expensive to travel there compared to the highly efficient Japan. Flying in China, at the time at least, was pure chaos. No one remained in their seats when the plane started taxiing, and at the airport, it was a madhouse. Everyone was shoving and climbing over each other to get to their luggage. When I arrived at the Shanghai airport, I hopped into a taxi and went to the airline, where I was told that a ticket back to Osaka would be way more than I expected. I had to get a cash advance on my visa card to pay for it. I went to the ship company to inquire about my canceled boat ticket, and I was told to come back the next day. When I did, they wouldn't refund my boat ticket. They claimed they had never received the request, and they knew nothing about it. I was never sure who made the mistake, but I lost $136, and the whole trip cost me one month of pay. While visiting the friendship store that last day in China, I met a Peruvian sailor, Antonio, who invited me out for a drink. We sat at a bar for a few hours, chatting. He was a merchant marine docked in Shanghai for a couple of weeks. A stereotypical macho man, he couldn't believe it when I said I didn't want to marry for five to ten years more. Actually, it turned out to be three years. He told me he smoked Marlboro because they were men's cigarettes. He admired my courage for traveling alone in China and told me I was beautiful in Spanish and English many times, and he kept offering me things to drink and eat, which I declined. When I finally extricated myself from him, he held out his hand, and I shook it, and then he kissed me on the cheek. I'm sure he wanted me to go back to his room with him. He kept saying, it's early, it's early. It was my one opportunity for a Latin lover, I suppose. My flight out of China was five hours late, but I met a nice Japanese tour guide at the airport, Masa, who was my source of information because all the announcements were in Chinese. Masa wanted to see me in Japan. He kept saying, I wish I had more time to talk to you. When I told him I wanted to go to Europe, he said, come with me as my guest. Two men flattering me in two days. Unprecedented. Wakayama was a great place for my first year in Japan. Everything was new and exciting that first year, and I did enjoy interacting with my students, especially the ones who took learning seriously or who asked me interesting questions about my life and thoughts. But best of all, that first year was meeting Mike at our friend Cass' apartment at a Robert Burns night in January. Here's how that happened. Each Monday night, I visited my lively Scottish friend Cass, who taught through the British English Teaching BET program. She frequently spoke of her BET colleague Mike, who taught at Kinky University in Osaka. Cass described him as funny, bright, kind, and much too nice for her. 
her, my North Carolinian Anglophile housemate, Mary Elizabeth, had decided before she even had met him that Mike was the man for her. Mary Elizabeth eagerly anticipated cast Robert Burns' night, to which Kath had invited her American colleagues and met friends. As is traditional with Robert Burns' nights, Kath asked her guests to bring a poem to read. Mike had found an R-rated version of Burns' poem, Rose and Butter, from an old poetry edition of the University Library. By the time Mike read his poem, we had talked about our mutual love of Jane Austen, and I was giddy from two highs, a Japanese cocktail with a misleadingly innocent flavor. His charm and easy wit delighted me. Later on that evening, he gave me a friendly peck on the cheek. Our warm conversation clearly upset Mary Elizabeth, because when I arrived home that night, she informed me that those British are hard to warm up to. Three months passed, we separately traveled to Thailand, and Kath put her mind to matchmaking. During my weekly late-night chats at her flat, Mike would often phone and hear me in the background laughing and sipping a gin and tonic. I asked Kath to invite Mike to a party I was hosting with my housemates. As the date of the party approached, I felt excited and nervous with a growing instinct that my life was about to change. I will never forget the moment Mike walked into my apartment, fresh from a cherry blossom viewing party. I was electrified by his presence. He wore a leather jacket and a copper bracelet on his wrist. I felt immediately drawn to him. He kissed me on the cheek and walked into my heart. Mike and I found each other on the dance floor and we started kissing. We left the party to take a walk and stopped to kiss every few feet. When we finally returned to the party, everyone was gone. In those first heady days of romance, I remember being drawn to Mike's beautiful accent, curly head of hair, twinkling eyes, warm smile, and the way he made me laugh and relax completely. I was totally taken with the way he kissed me in full view of Wakayama's housewives and the way that every activity we did was infused with romantic electricity. After staying the weekend, Mike returned to Osaka, leaving me in a state of euphoric exhaustion. A college friend was coming to visit him. He suspected she had feelings for him. I was touched by how he didn't want to tell her about us for fear of hurting her feelings, but I was desperate to see him again. Over the next month, we corresponded by mail. As soon as his first love letter arrived, I knew I had a keeper. Reading his funny romantic letters in his gorgeous handwriting left me feeling warm and adored. When I finally saw him again a month later at Osaka's Namba Station in his suit and tie, I felt astonished at my luck to have such a bright, witty, caring man waiting to see me. Over the ensuing few months, we spent every weekend together in Osaka or Wakayama. I was due to return to Oregon that summer, but I decided to stay another year. I just had the gut feeling that Mike was the one. After we traveled to Hong Kong and Macau together, I went home to Oregon for a visit and then moved to Osaka in the fall. I got a job at a language school in Shinsaibashi, one of the most vibrant places in the city. I shared an apartment with another college friend who had joined me in Japan. Mike and I spent as much time together as we could. I have so many fond memories of times in Japan with Mike. Cherry blossom viewing at Osaka Castle, eating dinner in fancy French restaurants, wine bars, and robatayakis, visiting places like Kyoto, Kobe, Lara, going to the movies and being the only ones to laugh during American and English films, and just learning about each other. We both met our respective parents for the first time in Japan. Osaka truly has some of the best food in the world, and it was there that I discovered my love of Indian food. We regularly ate amazing Mexican, French, Italian, Chinese, and of course Japanese food. Mike came back to Oregon with me during the summer of 1988, and we spent one Christmas in Singapore and Malaysia. I still tease Mike about the fact that he agreed to stay in Japan for a third year without consulting me. He basically just informed me that he planned on staying, even though we've been dating seriously for a year and a half. After two years in Japan, I was ready to move on. Life there was much easier for Mike as a foreign man than it was for me. His employment situation was way better than mine, and I had to teach way more hours than he did. I also chafed against the patriarchal culture, even though I was exempt 
exempt from many of the restrictions placed on Japanese women. By the time we left in summer 1989, I was excited and ready for our next adventure, while Mike departed in tears. We then embarked on a three-month journey through Asia. Mike's airline ticket terminated in London, and mine took me back to Oregon. I avoided asking questions about the future because I knew how I felt, but I wanted him to assert how he felt about our relationship. Beginning in glittering Hong Kong, we ate dim sum, rode the Star Ferry, and journeyed up to the peak to take in the views. We ate curried crab at our colonial-era romantic hotel and wandered lazily through the charming city of Macau. We ate the most incredible food and met Mike's sister in Singapore, who was visiting a friend there. In beautiful Indonesia, we ate street food in Jakarta, toured petite galleries in Jakarta, encountered the rudest Swiss people ever on a train through Java, stayed on the beach in the fishing village of Pangandaran, became annoyed by the Asi partiers in Kuta, and soaked up the green artistic mountain hamlet of Ubud in Bali, one of my favorite places ever. Indonesia offered warm, hospitable people, inexpensive travel, beautiful culture, art, and history, and the best breakfast of banana pancakes with chocolate sauce and peanuts with tropical fruit salad on the side. Traveling through India by train, supposedly first class, meant spending the night in filthy, hard sleeper cabins. We gloried at the wonder of the Taj Mahal, ate twice at a fabulous restaurant run by followers of the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, visited palaces and forts, fended off ear cleaners, and took a painful safari through the vast desert on the backs of camels. And in the exotic city of Udaipur, on the roof of a former Maharaja's palace in the middle of a lake, Mike asked me to marry him. And I accepted, with relief. I had already concluded I would propose to him before we parted ways, so at least we finally had a plan. Our parting at the Delhi airport was horrible. I left before Mike, and the nasty security guard would not let him accompany me to the gate. I cried halfway across the ocean. I was glad to be home in Oregon, but I missed Mike terribly after two and a half years of being together as much as possible. Three long months passed with more letters, an occasional phone call, and wedding preparations. When Mike was finally on U.S. soil, a grumpy government employee in Minneapolis nearly kept him from me. As son of a diplomat, Mike had a lifetime U.S. visa, but we had not realized we needed a fiancé visa. In a perfect catch-22, a fiancé visa lasted only three months, but we had five months until our wedding. The INS officer called our house and spoke to first me and then my mother, grilling both of us about my relationship with Mike. He searched through Mike's suitcases, reading my love letters and his diary, and searching for clues to prove he was an English interloper. By then, I was hysterical, waiting by the phone to hear whether he'd be allowed into the country. Finally, just before Mike was due to catch his connection, the INS officer called and announced his decision to let Mike proceed to Oregon. The final convincing piece of evidence that we were not really marrying for the green card was a calendar I had made as a Christmas gift for Mike. Our reunion at the Portland airport was infused with relief, gratitude, and joy. We got married that June. Mike wanted to be a writer, so I told him I'd support him for a year. Little did I know we would settle into this arrangement, and eventually I would realize I actually liked going out to work, and Mike liked staying home a true extrovert and introvert. Our marriage has only grown stronger through the storms we have faced together. A few months before we got married, I started temping at an environmental engineering firm called C.S. Schoen Hill. That summer, I moved into the company's editing group as a junior editor. I would end up working at C.S. Schoen Hill for 28 years, certainly a surprise to me. Just a few years later, I was promoted to lead the technical publications group, even though I was by far the youngest in the group. In early 1996, I landed a huge promotion to manage the whole publications group in the company's newest and largest region, six offices in Alaska, Hawaii, Oregon, and Washington, and later on, we added Idaho. It meant bringing together staff who were operating completely independently and building a high-functioning service team of creatives. 
I would serve in that role for 13 years, leading over 70 proposal managers, editors, graphic designers, document publishers, and repro staff. I loved that job, and I loved my team. But back to 1996, I had just been offered the job in February when I learned I was pregnant one month after our last childless trip to Oaxaca, Mexico. By August, my job was well underway, and I was regularly traveling around the region. In early August, I took a trip to Anchorage, and I was not feeling well. Even though I experienced bleeding several times during my pregnancy, I knew nothing about premature birth. After my Alaska trip, I was having a lot of stomach pains, which we were convinced were constipation because I had been having constipation throughout. One night, I was in extreme pain, so much so that I knew something was wrong. I was supposed to fly to Seattle for a business meeting the next morning, and I sent my apologies. Still, I was completely shocked when I took a shower and felt the umbilical cord coming out of me. I called my doctor, who told me to come to the hospital. Mike was out on a run, so I actually got dressed and drove myself to the track to look for him. Later on, the NICU nurses gave me a hard time for doing this. I should have been in an ambulance or at least not driving myself. Premature rupture of membranes can cause infection, placenta of rupture, even death. It's serious stuff. When we arrived at the hospital, the nurse examined me and informed me I must have been mistaken. Everything looked fine. I will never forget the nurse's loud gasp when my OB came in to examine me and gestured her over to take a look. Because the baby was breached and at great risk of suffering from lack of oxygen because of the prolapse cord, she left us alone to come to grips with the news that we had lost our baby. About five minutes later, she came back to report that she had talked to the doctors at Legacy Emanuel and they had more encouraging news. My OB gave us a choice, have a radical C-section and the baby would have a 50 to 60% chance of survival and all of my future pregnancies would need to be by C-section or deliver the baby naturally and he would die. I didn't even pause to consult my husband before I blurted out, I'll take the C-section. I knew in my bones that Christopher was meant to live. They transported me to Legacy Emanuel by ambulance and next thing I knew I was going under. Then I woke up to learn we had a live baby boy. Christopher was born weighing one pound six ounces and measuring 11 inches long. They wheeled me into the NICU on a stretcher to see his tiny, glistening, red, and rapidly vibrating body. Amazingly, he did not have a brain bleed, which most very early preemies have. My OB later confessed that she thought he looked like a fetus when he came out, and she was convinced he would never make it. I'm glad she waited a while to tell me this. He was red and bruised with translucent skin, scrawny and tiny, and very, very sick. Because he was on the high-frequency ventilator, his whole body shook on the warming bed, and he was covered in plastic wrap to protect his skin. To us, he was the most beautiful creature we had ever seen. I remember how much it meant to me when our family members expressed how beautiful he was. I needed to hear that. It was terrifying, but we were so relieved he was alive. I didn't know one thing about having a premature baby. I had no idea of the terrain or the dangers. I've always preferred hope to despair. So I clung to that hope until the next day when one of the neonatologists came to see me in my hospital room and gave me more dire percentages. The next days are critical. There's a 50% chance he could die. And if he lives, he has a 50% chance of major disabilities. After surviving the first set of odds, now we were faced with more. The next day, a well-meaning family friend who was a NICU nurse came to visit and told me that, quote, all the odds were against him. That upset me so much that I burst into tears and asked her to leave. Then I had my nurse make a sign from my door that said, think positive thoughts. Looking back, now I realize that all the staff must have thought we were completely naive with our heads in the sand. Well, Christopher showed them all. I don't think I could have survived the 117 long days of the Nikki without my hope. Throughout those four months, I clung to the vision of a three-year-old Christopher running on the beat. That's what got me through everything.
Chris was the sickest, smallest baby in the NICU for at least a month until two more 24-weekers were born. At the time, 24 weeks was on the edge of viability. We could not find any books about babies in that gestation. At the time, the premature baby book was the Freely Bible, and the author of that book had a 28-weeker who turned out to have major disabilities. The internet was still pretty new, and there were very few resources about 24-weekers, and certainly no support groups or blogs like we had later. We were totally on our own until a nurse introduced us to a couple and their daughter who had come back to visit the NICU. Maddie was a year old and was also a very early preemie. She gave us so much hope, and later on we would get to know her parents through our volunteer work. Ever since then, I've been absolutely convinced of the power of getting support from someone else who knows exactly what you have been through. I will never forget the devastating moment five days after Chris was born when we had to leave the hospital without him for the first time. It took a long time for me to recover from my C-section because I was spending a lot of time in the NICU and not lying around resting. I went back to work part-time when Chris was about six weeks old because I wanted to take my full three months off when he came home. Fortunately, I worked close to the hospital and could go visit on my lunch hour and after work. And I had an incredibly understanding new manager who invited being a childless bachelor was all I could have wished for during that crisis. We spent those 117 days glued to the monitor and watching Chris's oxygen saturation and other numbers go up and down. We sang to him every day and made a tape so he could hear our voices when we were not there. Chris's head was black and blue from all the IVs. They usually put IVs into preemie's heads. We spent hours by his bedside writing in our journal. We celebrated every single week he was alive by making a poster and buying a balloon for his isolate. By the time he finally went home, he had 17 balloons and the nurses joked he might float away. We developed rituals like saying a special blessing each time we left him and singing the same songs each day. We made incredibly strong bonds with some of the nurses. Each time we went to the NICU, we would call in from outside, waiting to hear who Chris's nurse was. We were usually relieved, but sometimes disappointed. I discovered I was much less tolerant of some of the nurses than Mike was. Must have been a mom thing. And when we came in one day to learn that one of my least favorite nurses had given Chris his first bath, even though she knew we always came in around lunchtime, I was absolutely livid and heartbroken. Fortunately, some of our favorite nurses recreated the, quote, first bath experience the next day, showing us how to bathe Christopher while he was hooked up to oxygen. We formed such close attachment to some nurses that many of them came to Chris's baptism and have attended his graduation parties more recently. I pumped huge quantities of breast milk several times a day. About a weekend, Chris started receiving my breast milk in tiny drops through a tube in his nose. At the time, visiting, singing, and breast pumping felt like the only things we could do to help him grow. In the beginning, we even had to ask permission to just touch him. Gaining weight was so hard for him because he was using all of his energy just to stay alive. Chris had to have heart surgery when he was just a few weeks old, and I couldn't stop crying until his nurse, Mary, took me aside and asked me about my greatest fear. I told her I was afraid he would die. Mary told me she'd never seen a baby die from this procedure. She didn't guarantee anything, but her words comforted me. Christopher ended up having three surgeries before he weighed five pounds. The most terrifying moments were three crises during his first seven weeks. At one point, we thought his lungs were going to give out, and the NICU staff called us into the unit early in the morning, informing us that they didn't think he would make it. The second crisis was a bad reaction to a drug. 
which resulted in cerebral edema and low flow to the brain. We were taken into a conference room and asked about our opinions on quality of life. The same neonatologist who said he had a 50% chance of major disabilities told us that he probably would have massive brain damage and would die. It was one of those times when I gave up hope, but Mike had an instinct he was going to be okay. We were also very fortunate that my sister, who is now a physician, was doing her residency at the time in Portland, so she was able to be there in that care conference with us and help us translate some of the more difficult medical information. Fortunately, Christopher rallied. The next day, we arrived to find a plain piece of paper by his bedside that said, Normal Head Gettle from the ultrasound tech. Third incident was in about seven weeks, by which time we really thought he was in the clear. A life-threatening infection had us scared out of our wits for several hours, especially because we were yet again called to the hospital from home and arrived in the NICU to see 10 people gathered around his bedside trying to save his life. This was Mike's low point. It seemed that when one of us was despairing, the other person had hope. Each time, the staff expressed great skill, caring, and dedication to both Christopher and to us. I will always be grateful for them. Christopher was on the vent for about five and a half weeks, went on to nasal cannula for a few days, and back on the vent until he was seven weeks old. I'll never forget when he first went off the ventilator and we got to see his beautiful face for the first time. The hardest thing was not being able to hold him until he was five weeks old. Even then, we were only able to hold him once a day until he moved to level two, the less critical area. I so desperately wanted to cuddle him and make him feel better. We did something called kangaroo care or skin to skin as much as we could, but we had to take turns holding him each day in the beginning. We became known on the unit as the singing parents. Music calmed him and made his sats go up, filling his blood with oxygen. Chris adores music and is a drummer, and I call him by walking musical encyclopedia. There is no doubt in my mind that this love of music comes from those days before he was supposed to be born, when he associated us not through touch, but through the songs we sang to him daily. We met some of the other families in the NICU and went through heartaches as some of the babies died. We also had to watch other families go home with their babies before us, including two other 24-weekers who were born after Chris but went home a month before. We know that neither of these babies had easy long-term outcomes, sadly. One was born to a drug mom and lost his vision, and the other developed a severe seizure disorder. Finally, December arrived, and we were desperate to be able to take our baby home by Christmas. He still wasn't gaining enough weight to satisfy the neonatologist, though. We had a care conference to discuss it. Fortunately, our new pediatrician, Dr. George Bengson, who we met for the first time that day, helped us convince the Neo to let us take him home by Christmas. Dr. George is still our kid's pediatrician and we love him. One of the best days of my life was the day we took Chris home a few days before Christmas. It was also a bit scary and nerve-wracking going from super qualified nursing care to just us. We had a five-foot-tall oxygen tank. We had to administer a ton of medications, many of which had to be crushed and combined with water carefully measured, and dosed in a syringe. Chris was hooked up to an apnea monitor, laptop computer for a medical study, and oxygen. But it was incredible to be able to hold him as much as we wanted without having to ask permission. We held him all the time, but we were terrified he would stop breathing in the middle of the night, even though he was hooked up to the apnea monitor. Even though he was a complicated high-tech baby, and most long-term NICU babies have difficulties adjusting when they go home. Chris had the sweetest, most easygoing disposition imaginable. Unfortunately, he had his challenges during his first year. He had major feeding problems and suffered from reflux. For a while, he projectile vomited several times a day all over us. 
I will never forget my first Mother's Day when both of us dissolved into tears because he didn't want to eat because it hurt. And I was afraid of what would happen because he wouldn't eat. The doctors had us very concerned about his slow weight gain. We fed him tons of avocado and coated his food in oil at the advice of a dietitian because we were afraid he'd be labeled failure to thrive. He didn't even make it on the bottom of the growth charts until he was four. One time, an extremely tall kidney doctor told us we should put Chris on growth hormones because, oh lordy, what would happen if he were short? At the time, growth hormones were experimental, and I didn't want him to be a guinea pig yet again. I'm only five foot, and my husband is five nine, so we knew he probably was not going to be a basketball star anyway. Some of the drugs Chris was on in the NICU, like Propulsid, were proved to be harmful. By the time Chris was in grade school, I began calling him the bottomless pit because he couldn't seem to ever get enough to eat. I'm convinced there's a connection. One of Chris's kidneys is damaged from a spike in his blood pressure during one of his crisis periods. When he had a follow-up MRI at six months old because of the cerebral edema, we were told that he had a mass of veins in his brain, arteriovenous malformation, that could cause a stroke and that he would have to have brain surgery. Fortunately, we talked the neurosurgeon into performing another MRI six months later, just in case. But we decided not to tell anyone because we wanted to maintain our hopes. And guess what? The MRI six months later was normal. Chris survived against the odds so many times in those early years. Almost a year to the day after we took Chris home, he had to be readmitted to the hospital because he caught RSV, which led to pneumonia. RSV stands for respiratory syncytial virus, and it appears as a common cold in healthy kids, but can be deadly for preemies. We knew a family who lost a relatively healthy 34-weeker from RSV after taking him home from the hospital. When Chris first came home, we were vigilant about hand-washing. We kept him out of the public until late spring and asked people who were sick to stay away. In fact, preemie parents are extremely well-prepared for this pandemic because we know the drill. I'm convinced that my breast milk kept him healthy all year, but we had just visited Mike's family in the UK, and my breast pump blew up because of the higher voltage electricity. I had to go cold turkey, and my breast milk ran out. He got RSV just a few weeks after that. We had to spend several days in isolation in the pediatric unit, and the nurses pumped quarts of mucus out of his lungs. It was awful. We ran into a few NICU nurses in the elevator, and they congratulated us for staying out of the hospital for a year. This was not what we wanted to hear because we didn't want to be there at all. Yet again, Chris came home just in time for the holidays. Another grateful Christmas. Preemie parents often use a term called preemie syndrome because preemies can have so many challenges in life that don't always fit into other diagnoses. Chris didn't talk until he was three years old because of all that time on the vent. He also had some motor and social delays. He started wearing glasses at age three because of his retinopathy, a prematurity, a preemie eye disease that caused TB Wonder to go blind. I still have some trauma about our NICU experience because I still get emotional, as I did a few minutes ago, when I think or talk about it. And when Chris had a frightening grand mal seizure at the age of nine, I actually fainted. It's all much more firmly etched in my psyche than I realize. Just when we thought we were in the clear, he was diagnosed with epilepsy and he was on seizure meds until he was in his teens when he grew out of it. When he was 10, he was diagnosed with ADD. But compared to the problems that beset so many micro-premies, he was so lucky. A walking and talking miracle. The NICU experience made me feel grateful that Mike and I were united through the biggest challenge of our lives. It strengthened our marriage instead of weakening it. Even though I'd never wish the NICU experience on anyone, through the experience, we learned to value life and miracles, and we also made some of the best friends of our lives and other NICU parents. We were invited to join the hospital's NICU Family Advisory Board to advise the NICU on how to be more family-centered. In 2000, we co-founded a nonprofit 
precious beginnings, parents supporting parents of critically ill newborns to serve more NICU families and eventually extended to serving two other Portland hospitals. I wrote a regular newsletter and we got donations from restaurants to host a free dinner every few weeks for families of the NICU. I served as president for several years with one of my close friends, Kristen, and we got involved in training other parent volunteers and telling our stories at nurse orientations. We became extremely close with these other families and built a tight-knit community with our nonprofit work, supporting families going through similar crises as our own. Many of these families had endured infant loss, including Kristen, who had birthed twins, only one of which survived. I remember when I had my first miscarriage, and it was the day of our holiday get-together. I would not have felt comfortable being around any other people. I walked into that house, and I was enfolded into the most understanding and supportive hugs I could ever have imagined. These people knew so well what it was like to endure loss, and they also knew how to support other people enduring loss. Chris got to be friends with the other little NICU grads in those families, and one of those was a little sweetheart named Zachary, who had a heart defect. Zachary's heart gave out on Thanksgiving evening when he was just four years old. We found out because some NICU nurses called us at three in the morning to ask us to come to the hospital because his parents didn't have any family in town. We had my parents come over to be here for Christopher, and we went to the hospital. We also called our dear friends Doug and Catherine, whose 23-weeker Parker had lived for only six days. Doug and I co-founded the nonprofit together. He met us at the hospital and we went to the pediatric ICU to support Zachary's parents while they held their dead son for the rest of the night. That night changed my life. The Precious Beginnings parents rallied around Zachary's parents through the coming months, helping to plan his funeral and set up a memorial fund. And through all of these friends, I've learned how to grieve and honor lost children and how to keep their memories alive. Losing Zachary affected Chris deeply. He began to have a hard time going to sleep each night. I can't imagine what it would feel like to lose a friend at age five. So hard to grapple with those big feelings at such a young age. Chris has always been the most forgiving person I know, filled with a capacity for kindness and compassion that cannot be measured. He cherishes his family and friends, and he loves life. I've always believed that preemies have a wisdom beyond their years, as if they know that life is precious and not to take life for granted. My miracle baby is 24 now. He graduated from college and is engaged to a wonderful woman named Emma. I'm so proud of him. They live in an apartment about 15 minutes away from us. And one of the worst things about COVID is not seeing him more often and not being able to hug him. Although I did sneak a few hugs while wearing a mask on his 24th birthday. When I went back to work after Chris was born, Mike became primary caregiver for our three sons. Our children have learned that moms can be the ones who leave the house to work, while dads can be amazing, caring, and fun caretakers. Mike writes fiction when he can squeeze it in. And after I got laid off last year, he became an in-home caregiver his true calling. I never found it easy to get pregnant or stay pregnant, even though I liked the actual experience of being pregnant. I experienced four miscarriages as we attempted to add to our family. It was horrible. And at one point, I remember Mike suggesting that we stop trying. But both of us had two siblings, and I really wanted Christopher to have siblings. So we kept going. Finally, we succeeded and had another son, Kieran. Then, after we thought our family was complete two years later, we were shocked to discover I was pregnant at age 41, even though we thought we were done with two children. After experiencing so much infertility, I knew Nicholas was meant to be. Through all of our losses, we learned that, as our friend Doug says, grief reorders your address book. Some people, like our church community, came through a big time in supporting us through our prematurity crisis, while other friends just couldn't deal with it. We definitely found this was the case later on when I faced infertility. 
My other pregnancies were considered high risk, and I was well taken care of by an amazing perinatologist, Dr. Merrill, who I adored. They were both born at 37 weeks by C-section because I would be at risk of my uterus rupturing if I went into labor. They were both huge in comparison. I have another gritty story of wanting the ideal birth experience and not getting that, but I'll leave that for another time. I have three healthy, wonderful boys, and that's what matters. I tell all three of our boys that each one of them is a miracle. They each are unique, sensitive, and loving humans, and I feel grateful to know them and be their mom. We're nearing the end of my grit and resilience story. I just have two more gritty things to share. In 2012, I discovered that I had a rare ear tumor-like thing called a blastoma. It was a result of my many childhood ear infections, and it was basically rotting away my ear bones. It also ate into my dura, the lining of my brain. Over the next five years, I had to have four ear surgeries, one of those also being a brain surgery. Ear surgeries are incredibly painful to recover from, and the brain surgery was the worst. I was in the ICU for several days, the same week as Sandy Hook at a shooting at the Clackamas Town Center near Portland. I was desperate to see my kids, but they wouldn't allow them into the ICU. The most vivid memories of the brain surgery were when the surgery anesthesia was wearing off and they had given me Dilaudid, but it did not work on me. I was in excruciating pain until they finally gave me morphine. After that, I became the perkiest patient in the ICU, but I was really glad to move to a regular hospital room. My ear surgeon was fascinated with me because no matter how many times he operated on me, my cholesteatoma was so complicated that it kept coming back. Isn't that lovely? He was convinced that surgery three would be the last one. Cholesteatomas require regular checkups like cancer to make sure they don't come back. Sure enough, it came back. I was really upset and distressed that I'd have to have yet another surgery, and my depression lasted a few days. But one day, I walked out of the river from my office, and something in me just shifted. I just knew I would get through it. My natural resilience just kicked in, and I knew I could just get on with it. That day, down by the water, I realized resilience was the theme for my life. The next year, my doctor recommended that I consider getting a hearing aid on my left ear because I'd lost a good deal of my hearing. That was a really tough decision to get past the stigma of a hearing aid. But when I finally took the plunge and passed the two-week period of headaches while I got used to it, I realized how it could improve the quality of my life. It's better to get a hearing aid when you're younger because hearing loss can increase the chances of dementia. The longer you put it off, the more likely you are to experience cognitive deficits from not hearing anything. In 2018, the company where I'd worked for 28 years was acquired by a much larger company. In the last few years I worked there, I had been doing work I loved as a sustainability and corporate citizenship communications manager, but I was working for two toxic bosses who were emotionally abusing my extremely talented young Latina coworker. When she filed a complaint, I spoke to the lawyer about the treatment she'd endured. Authenticity and justice are important to me, and the truth needed to be told. Pollyanna that I was, I didn't put two and two together until much later. After the company was acquired, I was the first one in the corporate communications department to have my job eliminated. My coworker had already left. It took months before anyone else was affected. I'm sure it was retribution. The miracle was I landed another job in less than a month working for a much smaller firm as their first communications manager. I thought it was my dream job, but my first day on the job was horrible. It was a sign, but it took me a while to figure it out. In the year I worked there, I realized the company would say one thing and do quite the opposite. The CEO declared he wanted to leave a legacy of creating opportunities for women, but the executive management team was packed with men who got away with treating the women who reported to them horribly. I was surrounded 
surrounded with highly talented women who are denied opportunities to have a seat at the boardroom table or even to advance in the company into leadership roles. My boss didn't have any supervisory experience but had huge responsibilities. And after 29 years of building strong relationships with colleagues and bosses, even the ones I didn't respect, it all came to a head with the least professional job encounter I've ever had. During the week of the Kavanaugh hearings, no less, when all women, especially survivors, were feeling raw. I told my boss how and why his behavior was completely unacceptable and that I could not thrive in this kind of work environment. We continued to butt heads as I was managing the revamp of the company website because he stubbornly challenged every communications best practice I knew. After the HR director, the only woman on the executive management team, left the firm to start her own company, I was asked to interview candidates to replace her, both women and one a person of color. I was the most senior woman in the office and I knew I was a token. I thought they were both exceptional candidates, but the company did not hire either one of them. My boss said they didn't wow them. This company had an equity and inclusion initiative, but was doing the exact opposite of equity and inclusion. I felt disillusioned and disappointed. A few days after I learned this news, and one year after my first day in the job, my boss told me he needed to lay me off. I was shell-shocked, but because I was revamping the website, he asked me to stay on another month, which grew into three. I worked from home, filling my soul ripped into two as I had to write about how amazing the company was all day long. The website should not have taken so long, but everything at the company took a huge amount of time to get done. They had decision paralysis and wanted to include every possible thing, and getting people to respond to reviews was like pulling teeth. At the same time, I started my job search, and when three months were done, my boss said he wanted me to work one more month as a contractor, and Fertile Ground Communications was born. And now you can probably guess why I chose that name. I wanted to create a company where I could find my fertile ground after working in toxic work environments for the previous few years. But I was still not completely all in. In 2019, I applied for over 130 jobs, saying the whole time, I'll put my energy into my business if I don't find a full-time job. I had a lot of interviews, but I did not get one offer. I was looking outside of the industry I worked in for 29 years, so that didn't help. I felt tethered to finding a full-time job with benefits because I was the family breadwinner. We had bills to pay. I was terrified. All along, I kept trusting that my path would appear, whether that was a full-time job or my business, but all that rejection really got me down. Now, backing up a little, I've always been one to love quotes like, leap. And the net will appear. I had always been interested in starting my own company. And through many ups and downs of my career, I felt like I had golden handcuffs because I was earning a good salary. I repeatedly chose security over creativity, autonomy, and independence. I was filling my natural resilience flag. I'm usually a high energy, optimistic person. A close friend urged me to see a therapist because she noticed the change in my spirit. I only went to see the therapist a handful of times before COVID hit, but that was all I needed. She helped me switch from, I have to start my own business to, I get to start my own business. On New Year's Day, I had chosen the word shine for the year, and I randomly chose an animal card of a giraffe. I didn't know why I chose the giraffe card until I was thinking about what to say on this podcast just earlier today. My animal is giraffe because it's time to stick my neck out this year. Some of the things I did to get my resilience back were to create a women's empowerment playlist on Spotify to remind myself to shine. I know one of my gifts is inspiring people, so I created a Facebook group called Shine and Inspire to encourage people during COVID. I made a list of actions that kept me going during hard times and turned that into a pandemic well-being plan, which you can find on my website for your own use. And I started this podcast. Hearing other people's stories of grit and resilience 
has given me life during these difficult and exhausting times we live in. We know that sharing our vulnerability strengthens our resilience, and sharing our flaws and foibles helps us to show up as our true selves. Therapy helped me realize that my natural optimism and tendency to look on the bright side had kept me in toxic work environments for far too long. I realized I had not really had the creativity and independent autonomy I loved since I managed the Northwest Publications Group and I could run it like a small company. My biggest aha, which I think I'd known all along, was that there was a reason I didn't get any of those jobs I applied for. I am meant to be chasing my own dreams instead of someone else's. Finally, I knew I'd made a turnaround when I got a call a few months ago from a consultant firm. They offered me a three-year contract, full-time communications manager position. I would have had to give up my business entirely, though, so I turned it down without any regrets because I finally know what I'm meant to be doing. I'm relying heavily on savings right now as I get my business going, but I know I'm lucky to have the savings. I'm excited about the possibilities ahead of me, and I'm finding joy in never having to work for a toxic boss again. After working in corporate social responsibility communications, I created my own corporate social responsibility commitments, even though I'm still just a company of one. I've committed to centering the voices of people on the margins, donating at least 10% of my time to nonprofits, and operating in a sustainable fashion. You can read my full commitments on my website. I'm building the kind of company I've always wanted to work for, centered in strong values of justice, respect, and authenticity. Looking back at my life, I realize that in spite of all the obstacles in my path, I've had so many things going for me. In other words, I've had privileges. I was born into a family that loved, cared, and advocated for me. I received the best medical care. My parents prized music, books, and education, and that's where they invested in us. Having a sister just two years younger than me meant I had a built-in best friend, even though I didn't always appreciate the significance of that until I left home. The notorious RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, wrote this about her husband, Martin. I have had more than a little bit of luck in life, but nothing equals a magnitude my marriage to Martin D. Ginsburg. I do not have words adequate to describe my super smart, exuberant, ever-loving spouse. I feel the exact same way about Mike. He is always been my biggest supporter and my most ardent fan, no matter what I have taken on in my life. I used to travel a lot for business and he always kept the home fires burning and the kids' lives organized. I feel incredibly lucky to have met him when I was only 22 years old and I convinced him to join me on life's journey. And finally, I've been blessed with the most amazing friends, especially the ones I've grown close to in the last 25 years. Throughout my life's most difficult moments, my friends have helped me survive and emerge stronger at the other end. I would like to close with this message to all of you who have endured difficult journeys in your own lives. You are magnificent human beings. You are stronger for your scars, whether they be physical or emotional. You are full of grit and resilience. And here is one final poem by Rupi Kaur. Stay strong through your pain. Grow flowers from it. You have helped me grow flowers out of mine. So bloom beautifully, dangerously, loudly. Bloom softly, however you need. Just bloom. I hope you enjoyed my colorful grit and resilience story. And now you know why I'm so fascinated by your grit and resilience stories. If you have a grit and resilience story you'd like to share, please drop me a line. Next week, I interview my friend April Brendan Locke and Miguel Ochoa Castellanos about a wonderful school in Chiapas, Mexico called Ogar Infantil. April is the president of the American Board of Ogar, and Miguel grew up there and runs a language school. He's a great success story. They will share how Ogar Infantil changed both of their lives. Thanks for listening to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. Our music is by jazz pianist Jonathan Swanson. This podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. Look us up on FertileGroundCommunications.com. And happy birthday to me. Mm -hmm.